This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to The Francis Effect for the second week of November 2017. My name is David Dalt and I host the radio show Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and is an assistant professor of systematic theology at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's good to see you. Welcome. Thank you, David. Good to be with you. Also, as always... Yeah, and uh, and how how has your week been? You've been traveling again. <laughs> it's the story of my life. This past week, I was in uh, just outside Green Bay, Wisconsin, at St. Norbert College in De Pere, Wisconsin. Beautiful place. Um, gave a lecture there Thursday night, and then at woke up at three thirty Friday morning to catch a flight to Baltimore, and led a, a retreat on uh, Thomas Merton in the Franciscan tradition, and came back last night and hit the ground running, and here we are. It's back to work. <laughs> And my week has been all about Halloween, and so we had the at the parish school where my two kids go, my seven-year-old daughter dressed up as Wonder Woman, and we had sort of a homemade Wonder Woman costume, and she was very excited about that. And my, my son, who is six, is absolutely crazy for bananas, and so we got— Wait, wait, wait. bananas the fruit, or bananas is some kind of Bananas I don't know about. the fruit, oh. and so we, we searched online on Amazon, and we got him a sweatshirt— that is yellow, a lemon yellow sweatshirt that has a, it has a hoodie on it, and the hoodie has an extra little peak, and on top of that lemon yellow peak, there's a little black top. So he would just pull the hood up, and he he was a banana for Halloween. Wow. And so he he's six. That was the bee's knees for him. He loved that. So that's basically been my life for the last several days is trying to put together these ensembles for our kids. But other than that, uh, I've been catching up on sleep and the Netflix show Stranger Things. Oh my gosh, I'm only on episode four right now. It, it, it's, it's very good. So yeah. I, Are you, have you finished it yet? Oh yeah, we finished it last oh, night don't at, say, at midnight. Oh, oh. It's, it's, it's not as intense as the first season, but it definitely, <laughs> it definitely holds up uh, the spirit and it, it was very satisfying. It's a wonderful show. Oh, it is, it is. Uh, for the listeners who haven't seen it, go back and watch the, the first season. It's, it's really... It's it is extraordinary, but I have to tell you, I'm on episode four, very scared right now because it's it's really freaky. So yeah. Yeah, watch it. Don't watch it alone if you don't like scary things. On today's episode, we have a guest. See, Vanessa White is going to be uh, speaking to us about several topics today. Uh, the, in the first segment, we're just going to be getting to know her and her work. Then we'll be talking about the Black Catholic Theological Symposium in our second section. Our third section today, we'll be talking about the conference at Boston College on the papal encyclical Amoris Laetitiae. And for those who are Patreon subscribers, we'll have a bonus segment where we'll be talking about the canonization of Bishop Tolton in that process. And see, Vanessa White, our guest, has been has been central to that process from the beginning. But let me turn it over to Dan, and he can introduce our guest. 
Well, it's really exciting uh, here at the Francis Effect podcast because we have our first guest theologian, Dr. Vanessa White, who is a professor in the Department of Spirituality and Pastoral Ministry at the Catholic Theological Union, a colleague and half my boss because I, I have a foot in two departments. So uh, in, in, in HDS, uh, I have one chair and uh, and Vanessa here is is the other. So no pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. No. But it's a joy, joy to have you joining us. And one of the things that David and I intended when launching this uh, this podcast was to talk about things that are going on in the world, kind of pressing events, cultural events, politics, all sorts of things from an informed kind of Catholic theological perspective. And so we're really excited now that we feel like we've got a little bit of our sea legs to invite friends and colleagues to come and, and join us in this process. I think it, the best way to begin, as uh, David mentioned in the, the top of the show, is for our listeners to get to meet Dr. Vanessa White. Who are you? Tell us about yourself. Oh, who am I? Okay. <laughs> well, I'm a native Chicagoan. Woo. I am a secular Franciscan. Uh, this <laughs> year, I uh, celebrated 32 years wow. uh, profession. I'm a secular Franciscan with the Sacred Heart Province. I'm also passionate about teaching and particularly passionate about teaching about spirituality and ministry, primarily focused on the intersections between spirituality, health, and justice. When we say the word spirituality, for our listeners who may be tuning in and, and don't know what this term means in an academic sense, when we talk about the academic study of spirituality, you're not just sitting around meditating. What are you, no. what are you actually doing? What we're actually doing is that we are looking at the spiritual traditions uh, within the Catholic Church. That's my primary focus. I would be teaching the students about those spiritual traditions, about those charisms, about the spiritual practices that help to sustain one in the spiritual life. And so I would say half the course would be focused on the actual uh, theoretical, historical aspect of spirituality. The other half of the course would be uh, focused on the methodology and looking at helping the students be attentive to their surroundings, the sacredness of everything that they encounter, also to be mindful of the fact that their body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, so looking at those sense of embodiment. And how, if I'm using a definition, I use the definition by Franciscan Sister of Perpetual Adoration, Sister Thea Bowman, who says uh, spirituality is the soul of the people. It is at once God-awareness, other-awareness, and self-awareness. That's awesome. Uh, Sister Thea Bowman, who, is her canonization process open? It, it, they're beginning it. It probably, many people already thought that her process had begun. I'm one uh, of them. I right. thought, you know, yes. it's like common many sense. Many had thought. Part of it is being sensitive to possibly what she wanted, po also the fact that she was a member of religious order, the Franciscan Sisters. They had a great love for her and a very amateur um, protectiveness of her. And one of the things that they had stated is that if her cause were to be brought forth, it really needed to come from the people, from the black Catholic community. Uh, yeah. And they needed to feel that this was a really strong momentum and support. And so I think now that has begun, Yeah, that it, it took a while. But if you even think of some of our other saints, sometimes it takes years and years. You know, I'll, I'll come back and later talk about 
Father Augustus Tolton. He died over 100 years ago. It was 100 years later that his cause for canonization came forth. Yeah, and that's a great anticipation of, of the conversation to follow for those who support the, the Francis Effect podcast on Patreon to hear about this. I'm excited because it's only since moving to Chicago that I've learned about Father Tolton. And now with his, his cause really beginning in force, you know, Professor White has been part of that from, from the beginning. I have some questions for you, too, because I know you, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned secular Franciscans, that we're part of the same Franciscan family, yes, which is always great. Franciscans should rule the world. Well, I know. I- <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's really interesting. This, uh, in fact, I, yes, it was a couple of days ago that I was in the library and someone asked me within the library, they said, you're always smiling, you know, What's going on? You're always throwing. And I said, "Well, I make a um, intentional decision every day to choose uh, this way to be, and part of it uh, flows out of my sense of being a Franciscan. Yeah, that sense of joy, that sense of life, that's that sense of peace. And so I can't. I have to be that way because (laughs) it's coming. It's flowing out of the fact of being a Franciscan for over thirty years." Well, and those who know you totally get it. I know, and mm-hmm. the, our listeners probably can hear it in your voice too. And I think that you're onto something too about the Franciscan spirit. Even if you're not a professed Franciscan like you and I are, and other you know Franciscan sisters right. and friars, take Pope Francis as an example. He has the name Francis. That dude is just he is Franciscan. What are you saying? <laughs> I mean, oh please, Shh, don't tell the Jesuits. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you, Vanessa. So, how did you get into you know, the academic study of spirituality, the, the, the classroom, the passionate teaching. I, I know you, you were in, engaged for a long time in pastoral ministry. Oh, yes. This, uh, this is a story. Let me okay. tell you this story. And it intersects <laughs> with me uh, being Franciscan. Many years ago, I will not state how many, but many, many years ago. <laughs> just a few. Just a few. I was a child life specialist at a children's hospital in Chicago. A child life specialist prepares children for procedures and helps the medical staff understand child development and how illness impacts the child. Wow. And so for seven years, I was a child life specialist. Now, at the same time I was a child life specialist, once a week I would go to Mass at St. Peter's in the Loop downtown. Good was, Franciscan uh, church. Good Franciscan <laughs> church. And for those that are unfamiliar with this church in Chicago, it's right in the, literally in the heart of downtown, in the, almost the center of what we call the Loop, which is the, the main corridor of the downtown. And it's an amazing church, but when you go in there to worship, if you look up, you can see that there are little rooms all along the top level right next to yes. the ceiling. This is where the brothers, the friars live. Friars live. Yeah. Yes, they live They live here. And so in the basement, they have varieties of different programs. And one of the programs they would have would, uh, would be a, a Tuesday noon mass in the basement. And so I would go there and I became very friendly with the friars down there. Well, at the same time, I had a very bad car accident. Oh, my. I should have died. I mean, you saw this car, I should have died. Wow. And after I... Uh, was healed. I used the money from the accident. I said, I'm going to thank God in the Holy Land. I'm going to where Jesus was born and thanking God wow. that I was alive. So I went on a Franciscan pilgrimage. Uh, Father Chuck Faso and Father uh, Don Blazier, they both were Franciscan friars who led this pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And so I spent almost two weeks there. Wow. Now they say when you go to the Holy Land, you come back changed. And I came back restless. And that sense of restlessness led me, one, to get a spiritual director who was Franciscan, Father Albert Haas. Oh, sure. Father Albert. 
I think he's done that retreat that we that you're doing this year and I've done yes, in the past yes. too. <laughs> so, so I met Father Albert and from that he felt I was being called to ministry. And I also began feeling called to the Franciscan way of life. So I, that was when I also began studies to be a Franciscan. Wow. Well, after a few years of uh, and I went through my profession, I felt called to do ministry. And I said, well, let me see if this is really what I want to do. So I decided to investigate faith-based lay volunteer programs. And I really encourage anyone who's considering possibly ministry who may not, let's say right now, you may not be encumbered by family responsibilities to really consider that. So it was, it was similar to like the Peace Corps, but it was faith-based. And so... I just want to ask because some of our listeners will not be Catholic, and they, mm. they they may be wondering right now if they look at the exterior of the Catholic Church, they'll think, "Well, the only ministers in the Catholic Church are men." So, what do you mean when you say pursued ministry? Okay, um, well, basically, I felt called to do some type of service that was in a faith-based context. When I contacted the Catholic Network of Volunteer Service. And so in this directory of volunteer programs, there are uh, various volunteer programs, Catholic, ecumenical-type programs. And so I found one with the Claritians. The Claritians publish U.S. Catholic, are very much involved in apostolic ministry, uh, preaching the Word. And I met one of the Claritians, and I'll say this, over pizza and beer. <laughs> they're, all, they're practically Franciscan. They're right? practically Franciscan. <laughs> over pizza and beer, uh, we discerned that maybe this volunteer program was the one for me. Mm-hmm. And so I joined the lay volunteer program. While I was late there, the characteristics of that volunteer program, they, they stated there are three pillars. It was service, it was community, and it was spirituality. Those were the three pillars. And I remember during the whole time I was uh, with them, I was sent to St. Louis. I thought I was going to go uh, New York, go, you know, someplace far southern, but I, I ended up in St. Louis. So I uh, was in St. Louis. And during that time, I remember time and again speaking about the fact that I didn't I think we were attentive to the spiritual aspect of the program. That usually the first thing that was let go of, you know, we were supposed to pray together, but I'm too busy. I got to do my uh, ministry. I got to do my work. Or, and so I would constantly push for that. Well, after a year, when I was uh, thinking, uh, discerning what I was going to do, they asked me to become the director of the Claritian Volunteers. <laughs> That's what happens when you ask too many questions. Ask too many questions. They put you in charge. And then I was like, oh. So. And then I started thinking. I was like, oh, I had another plan. But I really had to pray on it and say, well, if I was always pushing for this, the Lord was placing me in this uh, situation. So I became director of the Claritian Volunteers, who— uh, the Claritians are one of the corporate sponsors who send their uh, young men or older men to Catholic <laughs> Theological Union. We won't say which is which for <laughs> right. our current students right. who counts as younger That's or true. older. But um, Catholic Theological Union is the school uh, for those uh, seminarians who are preparing for priesthood. And Claritians sent their men here. And so while I was here, and because I was studying, because I was the director of the lay missionary, lay volunteer program, and we send volunteers throughout the United States and Guatemala, I thought that maybe it would be good for me to go back to school and get my master's degree. So the Claritians, I tell people I was a Claritian scholar. You know, we have all these different scholar programs here at CTU, but I was a Claritian scholar. Claritians supported me, and I came to CTU, and I studied cross-cultural studies and mission. So I got my first, that's what my master's was in, cross-cultural ministry 
uh, in Michigan. And so I came here, and then after a few years, I discerned, I began getting restless again. I always tell people, be attentive to that restlessness, because God is really speaking to you in that restlessness. Yeah, yeah amen. And it will and keep coming back, and you can try to push it away, but it'll keep coming back. Well, I began having that restless feel, uh, sense again. And I really felt that God was calling me to uh, to go back and work with uh, young people again. I, as a child life specialist, I had worked with t- uh, adolescents. Mm. And so what happened is that I was called to work at LaSalle Manor Retreat Center. The Christian Brothers had a retreat center. Uh, LaSalle Manor is one of the oldest continuous running retreat centers for youth in the country. And, and that's, is that here in Illinois? It's here in Illinois. It's 50 miles west of Chicago. Okay. It used to be as a log cabin um, building that then they built a dorm onto it. It used to be the home of the CEO of American Greeting Cards. <laughs> and it's, it's amazing. But this yeah. place is beautiful. It's um, 50 acres now of wooded land, tennis courts, swimming pool, volleyball court, all this wonderful. What are we stuff. doing in this the studio recording this podcast? We should be at this I know. It's a, great, <laughs> it's a great place. I went there, and for the next three years, I— I started as a part of the staff, and then I became the director of retreats for uh, LaSalle Manor. So you kind of see this pattern again. It's, it's, it's really, it seems to me, just as you're describing these steps, particularly the restlessness part, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of two things that, that just seem to be radiating from your, your, your story, your, your ongoing experience, which is, one, you know, raising the questions as both a, a, a lay minister, a volunteer with the Claritians, and then as the director about where's the spirituality, and like when you said, the first thing to go is prayer time. It reminds me of our Franciscan tradition where Francis of Assisi wrote in, in the rule that the brothers and the sisters are to work. It doesn't matter what you do. It just can't be sinful. And then the other thing he always said was they can't extinguish the spirit of prayer and devotion. Yes. And yes. So, so that's so this be a was and, there, and there's that tension. There's all, yeah. There is that tension. But you have to be mindful of it. You really have to be mindful of it. So I was uh, at LaSalle Manor for a number of years. Then I became restless again. <laughs> and this time I felt I was really being called to take a break. And for a year, I did not do any ministry. I tell people I did a layperson sabbatical. And for those who do not know, sabbaticals are usually those things that religious and the ordained and religious men and women can take where they've been involved in ministry or service or work for a number of years. And then they're able to take maybe from three months to a year time to refresh and renew themselves. Well, most laypersons can't do that unless we're independently wealthy. We can't do that. But what you can do is what I did. I intentionally did temp work for a year, oh, wow. so I wouldn't have any responsibilities, but it was, it was paying for the bills. And I was able during that time to read up on health and wellness, because also during this time, I was noticing that a lot of ministers were burnt out, mm. were stressed out, yeah. were laid out, or were flat out yeah. you know, in the ground. And so I began saying, what is it that's happening with us that uh, we're supposed to be we're supposed to be like Pope uh, Francis talks about. We're supposed to be like a spring that just overflows. Yeah. And that spring and that well was dry. And so I began really doing some research on health and wellness and taking care of self. I went on my first vacation that I hadn't gone on in a number of years. And I really looked at what I was putting into this body as a temple of the Holy Spirit and how I was giving this body rest. And so after that year, I've really felt renewed. And it was interesting. I didn't have to look for a job because different people came to me about positions. And one of those places was CTU. (laughs) And CTU 
had a position available for the director of the Augustus Tolton Pastoral Ministry Program. And the uh, Tolton Program, as we uh, call it, uh, prepares black Catholic laymen and women for ministry in the church and provides them with scholarships so that they can pursue their study. And then we and, form them. And, and we'll, we'll pick up with that conversation about the Tolton program for mm-hmm. our bonus segment. But, right. but that kind of gets us to a good stopping point right here, because now we can pivot to some of the specifics that you have been sort of working on over the past couple right. of weeks and months. So let's just take a quick break. This is the, the Francis Effect. I'm here with Dan Haran. I'm David Dalt, and we're very, very happy to have C. Vanessa White, Professor of Spirituality from Catholic Theological Union, as our guest today. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, this is David. This episode of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by our friends at Franciscan Media. They're seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, Ronald Rollheiser, and, uh, oh, who's this on the list? Yeah, Dan Haran. I think I've heard of him. Your purchase or donation helps Franciscan Media continue to fill the world with the Franciscan spirit. Head over to franciscanmedia.org and check out features like The Saint of the Day, a short biography and reflection of the day's saint delivered to your inbox every morning. And when you're there on the website, I'm sure that you're going to see a lot of stuff that you'll love to purchase. When you do, let them know that Frank sent you. If you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, when you check out, you'll save 25% off your first order, and you'll let them know that their message is getting out through the show. We appreciate it very much. Welcome back to the Francis Effect Podcast. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. And we're very fortunate this week to have a guest with us, Dr. C. Vanessa White, who teaches spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago. And among the many things that she has on her very impressive and extensive biography and, and resume is that she is one of the former conveners of the Black Catholic Theological Symposium, also known within the Theological Guild as BCTS. So, Vanessa, even within the field of theology and the field of spirituality um, in seminaries, I'm not sure that a lot of ministers, a lot of folks know about BCTS. Now, we were talking about it recently because every year the BCTS has its annual meeting. This year it was in an interesting place. The weather, I guess, was was pretty bad. You know, it wasn't very fun, was it? No, it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, it was it was warm. It was uh, the sun was out. We were actually in Saint Lucia in the Caribbean, the Virgin Islands. It's uh, interesting that Saint Lucia has not been hit by a hurricane since the 1800s. It was a lot of rain, but it really didn't get hit by the hurricanes, though they are, the diocese does care for Dominica, which was hit by the hurricanes. And one of the things we did, actually, members of the BCTS, we made a commitment a, several years ago that we were going to go outside of the U.S. And one of our members is from St. Lucia oh. originally. And so he's laid the groundwork for us to go to St. Lucia. It was about 20 of us, 18 to 20 of us, who actually made the commitment to go and during that time, uh, let me, well, let me step back. Yeah, what uh, the is Black the BCTS? Ca- the Black yeah. Catholic Theological Symposium, or BCTS, is a national theological society of African descent of the Roman Catholic tradition, whose uh, focus is to really support the theology, the experience, and the culture of black Catholics. 
We encourage uh, teaching and discussion of black Catholic religious and cultural experiences and thought within theology, religious studies curriculum at universities and at seminaries, at schools of theology and ministry. We also publish reports and discussions of our members in our annual journal. So we have an annual journal. And what we do at our annual meeting is that it's a time to enter into discussion to develop our papers and our writing and our research. And so as part of that annual meeting, uh, several things take place. One, we have a public lecture, which is open to wherever we are. And so we, uh, we invite people to come in and, le- and meet uh, Black Catholic theologians. Who gave it this year? What was the theme? Well, we had a panel discussion. It looked at the relationship between African-American and Afro-Caribbean theologies. Oh, wow. And so the panel was Dr. Brian Massingale, who's at Fordham University. It was Dr. Anna Kasafi Perkins, who's at St. Michael's in Jamaica. It was Dr. Shawnee Daniel Sykes, who's at St. Mary's in Milwaukee. And it was the Reverend Dr. Patrick Anthony. He's known as Paba. Uh-huh. And he's a theologian from St. Lucia. Actually, it turned out that he studied in the 80s at Catholic Theological Union and was one of the students of Bob Schreider. Oh, get out of here. And yeah. so I'm, I'm to send, in fact, I told Bob, I said, I, I have felicitations to you from Paba. And he, uh, he just lit up. He was like, oh, yes, I remember him. <laughs> it's a small world so here small at CTU. World. <laughs> so that was the public lecture. And At this public lecture were uh, ministers and theologians also from St. Lucia. And so after the the panel lecture, then we enter into discussion. Then another aspect of our time, besides giving the papers, is that we have a listening session. And what we try to do as uh, theologians is that we will attend Mass, Eucharistic celebration, Sunday Mass, in a particular parish in whichever um, city hosts us. And then we have a listening session afterwards where the people, we listen to them because we really believe as theologians, our theology has to be informed by the people. We have to be in relationship with them. And we can't be in our ivory towers. If I look back, my main interface with black theology is through the Protestant tradition and James Cone. Mm-hmm. But yes. the, the, the lived black experience being an important source for theology. Yes. And so I see very much how that resonating point is there for you and this as well when, you, when you're having these listening sessions. Right, definitely. And it's interesting that the BCTS was founded in 1978. And so this next year will be our 40th anniversary. Oh, wow. And during the course of our time, we have been in dialogue with James Cone and Protestant theologians. In fact, one of the issues of theological studies uh, looked at black theology in the Catholic Church. And one of the essays was by James Cone, who was critiquing exactly the uh, Catholic Church and its response to black theology. Well, maybe that's a good point, actually, for me to to raise another question, which is 40 years, which is awesome. That's great. What was going on in the 70s, some of our listeners who are uh, theologians or familiar with, with the history will realize that that's, you know, within a decade of the Second Vatican Council, there are a lot of shifts that are going on in, in the Roman Church. We also see the emergence of South American uh, Latinx liberation theology, mm-hmm. Gustavo Gutierrez, Ignacio Eacria, and among others, writing and, and developing uh, liberation theology for those who are abjectly poor in the global South. Mm-hmm. And then in the United States, not just in the U.S., but we have theologians like James Cone, Cornell West, uh, Sean Copeland, and others mm-hmm. who, who are writing right. about the experience of, of, of black men and women mm-hmm. um, 
is particularly from the Roman tradition, right. which is where BCTS comes in. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder, Vanessa, do you mind uh, sharing a little bit about the founding of BCTS in 1978? There's another group, too, that I know BCTS works really closely with, particularly when it comes to statements and responding to current events in which justice is, is first and foremost a concern, and that's Octus, which yes. is, you know, the Society for... Yes, we'll get this right. Okay. The Academy <laughs> of Catholic Hispanic Theologians of the United States. Amen. That's wow. why, <laughs> that's, that's, that is we, a We've worked together for a while. <laughs> I'm learning a lot here. Right. Yeah. We, we've uh, worked together for a while. Well, one of the things, just in looking at that, over the years, we have we've really seen that we have to have allies in the struggle, Allies from the Hispanic community, allies from the white community, Anglo community, allies from the Asian community. We must, we must work together in the sense of looking at the transformation within our society and within our church. And so we have been allies. We've worked with Octus for a number of years. I know in 2005, we, uh, 2005, 2006, we actually had a joint colloquium where we came together. But also even before that, I believe five years before that, we c- came together. Uh, Jean-Pierre Ruiz, who's with Octus. He's at St. John's uh, University. St. John's York. University. Miguel uh, Diaz were... Carmen Enko Fernandez, Alberto Cavazos Gonzalez, M.T. Davila, if we look at today, uh, Jeremy Cruz, were uh, those uh, persons who were just some of the people within Atus who saw the value of our coming together. And so what happened this past year, while I was, I'm past president of uh, the BCTS. In fact, I've just stepped down from being a part of the board. I was part of the board of BCTS for the past nine years. <laughs> we were talking about this. I didn't realize this for, for listeners who think that board membership or, you know, to be a president of society is this this great thing. And it is. It's very important. It's a lot of work. It's and, a lot of work. And with BCTS, it's, there's what, three-year terms? It's three-year terms because yeah. we don't have as many members as, let's say, the Catholic Theological Society of America or even Octus. We're a smaller organization. So we, when I was made vice president or associate convener, that was a three-year term. I planned the meetings for three years. Then I became the president, rolled over immediately to becoming president, which uh, like the public face of the BCTS. And then three years as past convener. Past convener <laughs> You is, can't escape. <laughs> past convener is primarily you do whatever the convener feels needs to be done that you can do. So, so for nine years. So this year and St. Lucia, I stepped uh, away. But as uh, members of the BCTS and as members of Octus, we have seen that we've shared some similar struggles. And so this past year, we had a joint colloquium that was entitled Set the Captives Free. It took place right before the CTSA meetings in uh, June in Albuquerque. The focus was on detention and incarceration of our members Mm -hmm. of brown and black bodies. And so we had a number of different panel presentation discussions, and then we entered into dialogue with one another. Out of that, that year is when also M.T. Davila became the president of Octus. And it's interesting, Octus for the past five years, all their, uh, their presidents have been women. Oh, that's, and that's great. And that's been, uh, and the next a few presidents will be women. Jackie Aldalga will become president next, and then Naomi Dianda will be oh. the following president. And I've worked with all of them, and they're very committed theologians and activists. Well, out of the colloquium, we felt the need of what was going on in our society with the recent surge in hate crimes 
and in racist behaviors that we've seen in the United States, we've said we can no longer remain silent and do things in our individual silos. We need to come together and make a joint statement as a body. Uh, One of the things I truly believe there's a, I think it's an Ethiopian proverb that says one stick can easily break, but you bring a bunch of sticks together, it's hard to break them. And I really think a single voice, you may not hear it, but if the shared power of our voices can make a difference. And so on September September 4th, 2017, we issued this joint statement. I worked on and a variety of other members of the board of Octus and BCTS worked on, and we have this statement. You can find it on bcts.org. And we'll make sure to put in the show notes on on the website links to both Mm -hmm. the BCTS page and include the links to the document. But we really hope that this document will be used in schools, will be shared in parishes, that it, it really shows how theologians can speak together in one voice and make their voice heard and make a difference. If I can follow up on that, because I think you're you're raising such a such an important point. First and foremost, you know, we need to work together. People who occupy social locations like Dave and I do, I mean, we're white men who are very educated and we we live and occupy places where there's an intersection of a lot of privilege. And so it's unearned, unwarranted privilege, but it's the flip side of the oppression that exists and structural injustice in our society. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things, and we've discussed this on earlier episodes, that we're aware of and we encourage listeners to be aware of if you identify as white or occupy a similar position is to not only just educate yourself, but what you said, Vanessa, in, is in talking about speaking out with one voice, communities coming together, persons of color, both in this case, Latino or Latinx communities, the black community coming together. You need allies as well, white allies. I think one of the things that we need to do is listen to that multiple yes. voices. Yes. And I hear you saying that in terms of here's one resource, an additional resource, this, this mm-hmm. statement that pastors and ministers and people in the pews can go and look at and read. It's, it's a little bit of a stereotypical question, but do you have, in addition to the Octus BT, BCTS joint statement, what are other starting points? One thing David and I have talked about in previous episodes is the writings of Ta-Nehisi Coates, who is mm-hmm. not a theologian yes. um, and actually doesn't care for religion at all. Right. But my God, what, what an amazing writer and a brilliant thinker. It's interesting that one of the papers at the BCTS this year was by a doctoral student, Rafi Rahman. He's at uh, Catholic U. And he was putting into dialogue Ta-Nehisi Coates and James Baldwin. Oh, wow. Yeah. And looking at them also in relation to being a black Catholic scholar. And because yeah, you have two amazing mm-hmm. writers, brilliant social critics right. and thinkers, neither of whom are Catholic. Right. Neither of <laughs> whom are Catholic. Yeah. And many times critique the Catholic, Catholic Church. So the, the interesting thing about the BCTS is that we are very intentional, but that we are interdisciplinary theological society which means that members of our society are also, some of them are psychologists and sociologists, or they may be historians, or they are, as I said, they're moral theologians, they're spiritual theologians. And so we have a variety of disciplines because all of the, that intersects in the life of that human person and in that person, and particularly 
as a person who's a black Catholic, we have to uh, we have to also be attentive to the social context and do social analysis because all of that impacts that person of faith. I, I'm struck too by um, something you just kind of said in passing, which is so right. One of the things that Tanahasi Coates and James Baldwin also did was critique religion, critique Catholicism, and passing mm-hmm. sometimes more directly. And in our last episode, uh, David and I had a conversation about all of the sexual assault and violence that's come to public awareness with the Harvey Weinstein stuff, the mm-hmm. Me Too campaign. And one of the things that I said, in addition to the fact that, you know, men, this is a male problem. You know, this isn't a problem for women. Just like uh, structural racism in the United States, as I know Father Massengale and other people have said time and again, James Baldwin said it, Ta-Nehisi Coates has said it, even even some white allies like Thomas Merton have said mm-hmm. it, which is yes. racism in the United States is a white problem. Yes. And I'm wondering, one of the things I said, too, is that, you know, the Catholic Church has contributed to, you know, the problems of sexual assault and violence because sometimes of the it's the way that church teaching is articulated or the way that certain people practice their faith and mm-hmm. misunderstand or misappropriate scripture and other things. I know that that Father Massengale has written about this in his his awesome book Racial Justice in the Catholic Church. But I'm wondering too from your experience, you know, your work as the president of BCTS, your own research and writing, your teaching, your ministry, are, are there ways that you see the Catholic Church as complicit in structural racism? Where where do we as a whole community of men and women of all social locations, all races, all genders, all identities need to wake up and see, you know? In one sense, I think that we as church, we need to know our history. And particularly here in the United States, we're very, you know, we have what I call short-term memory loss. We do not want to know the history. We do not. It's um, repeatable and replaceable. That really is the um, the structural identity in some ways. And so as a Catholic, an excellent book, I would say every Catholic needs to read The History of Black Catholics in the United States by Cyprian Davis. Oh, classic, yeah. Dr. Cecilia Moore, who is a professor of history, American Catholic history at University of Dayton, is working on the second edition of that book now. Father Cyprian, before he died, he left her all of his the writings and notes for that second edition that she's trying to finish that. But the first edition is still available. And so I really do encourage uh, Catholics to become informed because we really are not informed. So we, we journey in ignorance. I can get angry, but at the same time, if I'm not telling, giving you the resources and I'm not communicating those t- to you, and it's not happening in your schools, I can get upset and get frustrated, but I need to let, but it needs to become a transformative anger, which moves to action. So giving you resources. That's why, you know, this is uh, something that I'm, uh, will be doing at CTU at our next faculty meeting. Next month is Black Catholic History Month. November is Black Catholic History Month, which was developed by the Black Catholic Clergy Caucus. Uh, when they realize that we, we have the Black History Month, but we need an extra month. We need a month just to learn about Black Catholic history. And so in November, it's the time to be intentional. So what I'm giving every a member of the faculty next month is the 32-page bibliography of the BCTS. Is that online? Can we link to that too? What we're trying to do 
It's going to be on the bcts.org website. website. Okay. People so it's, so you'll be able to get it on the website. But I'm, I'm giving you a hard copy because I know how it is. I can give you the link. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, but you need to visibly see that a black Catholics have contributed research and writing to th- theology and those other disciplines. And so I think if you actually physically have in your hand this bibliography, it's like, okay, you can't discard this. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you do, or you're you doing say, it willfully. Or you, can't say, or you can't say, I couldn't find it because I've given it to you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so I've, I've never taken, seen it. Yeah. I've never seen it. So I've taken, so then I've taken responsibility. I have done what I can do. And now you must do what you can do. You know, it's so Franciscan. Par- yeah, I know. I'm, I'm paraphrasing Francis a little bit there. But that's, uh, that's what we can do. And I think um, each one of us, even those of us who are in areas of privilege, I could say, Having this podcast, having me on this podcast is the way you as my as ally uh, with black Catholic theologians are using your privilege to make known uh, something that is, had not been unknown, that had been invisible. Well, with that, let's continue the conversation in just a moment. This is The Francis Effect. I'm here with Dan Horan, and we're talking today with Dr. Stephen Essa White, and we'll be back in just a moment. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to The Francis Effect. My name is David Dalt. I'm here with my pal Dan Haran, a Franciscan friar of the Holy Name Province. Every couple of weeks we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. We're blessed today to be talking with Dr. C. Vanessa White, who is a professor of ministry at Catholic Theological Union and one of Dan's colleagues. And we've been talking about a variety of subjects. And we're going to turn now to the question of Amoris Laetitiae. Now, we're recording this at the end of October in In early October, Father James Keenan at Boston College's Jesuit Institute partnered with Cardinal Blaise Supich, our bishop here in Chicago, to put together a conference at Boston College to reflect on how Amoris Laetitiae has been received by the church and what might be done to improve that reception. We are talking about that in sort of the wider sense, but also in the sense of just the controversies that have been going on around Amoris Laetitiae as well. And if you're unfamiliar with that, if you're a listener who is not up to speed on Catholic encyclicals and the like, there are there are many, many aspects to this. But probably the most important aspect that you might have heard about in the news is that Amoris Laetitiae is looking at the question of divorced and remarried Catholics as one central question for the 21st century church. Well, the conference took place on October 5th and 6th at Boston College. My alma mater, go BC. Yay, BC. (laughs) One of the things that had been shared at the conference was the fact that this apostolic exhortation has not been really discussed at the bishops' conference at the USCCB. Which which raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? It it can raise a lot of questions. Cardinal Supich took it upon himself to enter into conversation with James Keenan and says, there are some bishops who would like to talk about this. 
and there are some theologians who would like to talk about this. And really, why don't we get, why don't we do something that hasn't been done in a long time, is bring theologians and bishops together. Because the theologians, in some ways, are, are to be of service to the bishops. And so what he did was that we had about 15 bishops and 15 theologians who he felt would be able to enter into dialogue with one another. Most of the bishops were from the U.S., though we did have, he looked at where Amoris Leticia has been discussed at other bishops' conferences internationally. And so he looked at Germany, the bishops in Malta have discussed this, and I think the bishops in France and also in Italy, there's been some discussion on this, but it has not been discussed here. And so what he did is that he invited us to come for just two days, uh, just learn from one another. And that's really what happened. And so the conference began with looking at, uh, I was on the first panel, I was on uh, the first panel that looked at how is Amoris Leticia being received, mm. how it's being received uh, among canon lawyers, how it's being received in Hispanic, Latino, Latinx communities, how it's being received in the Black Catholic community, how it's being received at seminaries and schools of theology. You know, how is it being received there? What are some of the issues? What are some of those um, points of contention? Where is it not being received? How is it being received among the nuns, N-O-N-E-S? Um, <laughs> not the ones in habits. Right, not the ones in um, habits. But that term is for those who really don't have a church affiliation. They, If on a survey, they would click none. Exactly. <laughs> so that's how the term uh, none came out. Also, how, what does Morris um, Lutisi have to say um, to women, and is looking at women. And then finally, looking at what are pastors, you know, what are pastors in various places in the U.S.? How are they receiving Amoris Leticia? Also, how are theologians overall receiving it? So it really was a rich conversation. One of the things that came out of it, or one of the things that we observed, is that many times when theologians are speaking to bishops— there's a particular stance that bishops will have, arms crossed, you know, just like, you know. And this was really not that. There really was the sense that there was engagement, that the bishops wanted to hear what the theologians had to say, and the theologians wanted to hear what the bishops had to say. And so there was, there really was dialogue. And there was hope. What many, many of the theologians and also bishops came away with was a sense of hope. There is hope. Now, we should also mention that there was sort of a a cloud of angry witnesses around this conference, and there has been a cloud of angry witnesses around Amoris Laetitia more generally, a group of conservative commentators, but that also includes some conservative bishops and conservative priests who do not think that some of the questions that are being raised by Amoris Laetitia and its interpretation should Mm. even be addressed. And in particular, unless you've had an annulment and you are divorced, you you must not approach the communion rail. That's for them a bright line. And so... Well, it was interesting. Well, one of the things that was interesting was that it was as if Amoris Laetitia was the first one to say something like that. And what came out, one of the things that came out is that uh, during the time of Pope John Paul, St. Pope John Paul, that there had begun to be a change pastorally in how divorced Catholics were being treated. And so Amoris Laetitia is not changing doctrine, it's changing our pastoral response. 
I think that's what you need to say, how we can actually be in relationship. And I, I see, always look at Jesus and the Samaritan woman, which is in the Gospel of John. The Samaritan woman definitely, you know, she had an irregular union, <laughs> you know, if you want unions, many. But Jesus didn't initially put up the block. He entered into relationship with her. He pastorally showed that she had value. And in the process, transformation took place. And so that is what Amoris uh, Leticia is looking at, the joy of love, uh, which is known by its um, English name. The, the joy of love is really looking at how do we pastorally respond to families. And focus has been on pretty much one section in chapter 8 and has completely negated what the Pope has said about the challenges our families are facing today, the problems that they're facing financially, spiritually, physically, economically, the pressures that are placed on on young people not to marry. What about those families that are experiencing domestic violence and abuse? All of this is is touched upon in Amoris Laetitia, and we're not looking at any of that. We've negated all of that, and we focused on one small section to the negation of the fullness of this document. That shows why this conference is so important, and we were just talking on the way into the studio. I hope I'm not spilling any beans, Mm -hmm. but announcements should be coming out soon that conferences like the one in Boston College uh, earlier this fall are going to take place in the coming months at Mm -hmm. other universities around the U.S. Mm -hmm. This will hopefully allow more people at academic institutions, but the broader Catholic population to consider this. Mm -hmm. I think what you're naming by that kind of focus on the one passage in in Section 8 is, is what David was getting at earlier, too, which is similar to actually our civil politics, right? Some people have hijacked the whole bandwidth of our mm-hmm. attention and audience by focusing and throwing hissy fits and getting really upset about these mm-hmm. things, which makes us miss all the things you've talked about. Right. And and that raises a question for me that I'm, I'm eager to hear you say. Now, I know that your paper and the other presentations, the other papers that were given at the conference are going to be published in yes. short order. So people can keep an eye out for that coming out and, right. and certainly buy the book. But in, in the meantime, can you give us just maybe like a summary or a, a quick kind of overview of what your report was about and your presentation and, and from uh, your vantage point, how Amor, uh, Amoris Laetitia has been received? Well, one of the things that I said was that really Amoris Laetitia had not had an impact, the, uh, the apostolic letter itself, on the black Catholic community. Part of that is because of the fact of the complexities within the black Catholic community with uh, right now with the closing of schools, the closing of churches, uh, families working multiple jobs, the violence that's happening in many areas. Of, uh, many of the black Catholic churches are in inner cities where uh, there is violence and children are having to cope with that. So there's varieties of different issues. So they, the letter has not had an impact. At the same time, one of the things that I uh, have come to realize or in reading Amoris Laetitia, that there's points of intersection that this document can have with the lives of black Catholics. And what I find is that if you have a document that you're not able to show how this document has meaning in the life of the people, 
then that document is going to be dead. It's going to be dead in the water. So what we must do as theologians, as pastoral ministers, is show how Pope Francis is speaking to what is going on in your life and is trying to offer hope. One of the things that came out of the conference, uh, and this was uh, came from one of the Italian bishops, I think, uh, who was there. He said, this really is the foundational document of Pope Francis's papacy. Wow. This is really that if you look at all his other documents, they've been leading to talking about family. We all come out of a family. We all come from some form of family. And this is the document that we really need to be looking at within our particular churches and our parishes. What do you think it is that has caused, because you you mentioned a moment ago, all the different national bishops' conferences that have taken this up and have really engaged it. What do you think it is about the American context that makes the bishops not want to discuss this generally and makes them hesitant to make this a public conversation? Well, I can't speak to or the bishops. I really can't. Nor can we. It's not but, that yeah, kind of show. But, but what, I, uh, what I can say is that one thing about the U.S. is that we're, we're very complex anyway. We're not a small country. We are a huge country. There's lots of bishops and lots of diverse personalities. So I think one of the things that we are looking at doing is uh, in the sense of having these ind- – we're looking at uh, right now um, – Three different universities have have chosen to host us for conversations in on Amoris Laetitia. And it's going to be places where we're also hoping to gather bishops and theologians together. And that'll be Boston College, University of Notre Dame, and uh, the University of Santa Clara. So those are the places where we will be uh, meeting over the uh, Within the next year, I can't. I won't give you dates and everything because that's. <laughs> stay but, tuned. <laughs> but stay tuned. But so, so what I think uh, the strategy sometimes is that we really need. We're so big that we really need to be in smaller conversations before we can have the larger conversation. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. So there's so much more for us to talk about, and we will on the bonus segment of today's show. For our Patreon supporters, we will continue this conversation. But for right now, just on behalf of Dan, I want to say how much we have appreciated, C. Vanessa White, your being here with us and your insight and wisdom into these questions. Thank you. Thank you. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They are not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks. And you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not responsible for the content of this program either, but they gave us the kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes, like today's content with C. Vanessa White. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter at Facebook... 
at Facebook backslash Twitter hyphen Instagram. I know, you were so close. I'm a pro. He was on fire. He was on fire. He's the one out of all the three of us who does this for a living. So That makes me feel better. Yeah. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis and, and, and the letters F and X and the word pod. Likewise, our website is FrancisFXPod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisFXPod at gmail.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thank you again for listening.